everybody. Welcome to the Tilcombe Baptist Church podcast. Glad that you're here with us again. It's uh, Pastor Andrew, and I'm just kicking off this week's sermon series on Psalms, and we are going to be in the Psalms for a total of 12 weeks. So fasten your seatbelt and get ready to uh, experience the soundtrack of Scripture that is the Psalms. And uh, today we are just going over, you know, what, what are the Psalms? Why should we study them? How do they apply to our lives as Christian people? So that is the gist of the sermon. But I just wanted to make some additional statements about Psalms is that our church is going through a reading plan to read all 150 of them by the end of November. And when we do that, we are going to have a celebration of God sightings through our readings in the Psalms. So if you want to head over to our Tilikum if you want to head over to our Tilikum Baptist Church Facebook page and share your God sightings from your Psalm reading, we'd love to have you do that. And if you want to email us, tilcombaptist at gmail.com. You can do that. Tilcom is spelled T-I-L-L-I-C-U-M. And uh, just really want to hear from you, want to hear some feedback, and uh, just want you to know that if you have any questions or you'd like to know the additional resources that were used in any of my sermons, I'm very happy to share that. Um, just off the top of my head, I can tell you that I used uh, From Creation to the Cross by Albert Bayless. He was one of my seminary professors. And then also uh, Psalms, Walter Brueggemann's Psalms uh, commentary. And I'm also learning a lot of stuff uh, from Charles Spurgeon about the Psalms. So those are some of the resources that I've been using to prepare and get ready for this series. I hope that that's helpful for you. And again, if you have any questions, feel free to email or drop us a message on the socials, on Facebook, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Have a happy Labor Day and enjoy this reading of some Psalms. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. I have taken an oath and confirmed it, that I will follow your righteous laws. I have suffered much. Preserve my life, Lord, according to your word. Accept, Lord, the willing praise of my mouth and teach me your laws. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. 
For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Those are compilations of verses from the five most popular chapters of Psalms, according to the YouVersion Bible app. And that's Psalm 1, Psalm 23, Psalm 51, Psalm 119, and Psalm 139. See, they keep track of this information, and it just shows us that people are still discovering the beauty of the book of Psalms as the soundtrack of Scripture. And I'm really excited to be sharing them with you and to be going into this series for the next 11 weeks. You see, God designed us to be able to use our abilities to reason, to have emotions, and to, and to sense things, uh, to discover and respond to who God is. God created us in his image with the ability to be creative, logical, and emotive. Songs, hymns, poetry, and other artwork have been used through the centuries to convey who God is, the needs of human beings, core beliefs about the world, and how God interacts with us. Sometimes all you need is an opening line like, joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Or, when sings my soul, and you can fill the rest, because those songs have made an imprint on your brain that just make you full of worship. Or maybe, you know, if you have the chance to go to Rome and view Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam in the Sistine Chapel, you can see a Bible story come to life. See, the songs function as the nation of Israel's prayer and songbook. This was true of, of the Psalms for the Israelites as they worshiped God and they made sense of the world around them and they experienced difficult tragedies like the destruction of their nation and exile. Today, the Psalms are still fairly well known and included in movies like Pale Rider, starring Clint Eastwood, and the movie starts out with a little girl praying Psalm 23. Um, or saving Private Ryan as their, as their unit is deploying onto the beach at Normandy, the sniper in their unit starts reciting Psalm 29. There's musicians like you two who have written songs based on the Psalms. They have a song called 40 um, that is based on Psalm 40. And then speeches that we know are, that are famous like Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream he quotes Psalm 30, verse 5, and, and many presidential inaugurations have utilized the Psalms as an opportunity to share and convey ideas and ideals of, of God and, and, and what his interaction and the worship that we should bring to him are. Okay? When we need the Psalms, when we, when we, when we read, sorry, when we read the Psalms, we often defer to our favorite Psalms, right? to the ones that we feel attached to, 
And we spend time in a lot of psalms that have to do with worship and thanksgiving and wisdom and what the psalms have to say about Jesus. And we can often avoid psalms that have to do with confession or lament or even imprecatory psalms. Did you know there's psalms in the Bible where the writer is asking God to uh, cast some judgment, some pretty harsh judgment on, on their enemies? I mean, that's in the Bible. And, and the cool thing is, is that during this series, we're going to explore different themes and types of psalms and how the psalms helps us to develop as disciples of Jesus. So today, what I'm hoping to do is to do an overview and be able to answer the questions of what, what are the psalms, why should we study them, and how do we apply them as our, to our lives as followers of Jesus. So we're going to dig right in, and first is, you know, what are the psalms? I shared a little bit that they're the compilation of prayers and songs of the nation of Israel. They were sung during celebrations and feasts and pilgrimages and, you know, there's songs of ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, that are about uh, songs that they would sing as they go to Jerusalem for different feasts. They would, sing, they would sing or recite them at Sabbath remembrances and in times of personal or community tragedy. Uh, the Psalms are 150 chapters and most, most likely they were compiled into the current uh, version that we have in the post-exilic era around the time of Ezra. And uh, when, they were, when they were bringing all these psalms together that they had been singing in exile and they had been, been really uh, wrestling with where God was and, and, what the, and what he wanted them to do in worship because they didn't have a temple in exile, right? So the psalms were a balm to that place that was really sore and hard for them when experiencing that. Uh, the Psalms are divided into five different books, and uh, they're much like the, the Torah, uh, which are the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, uh, and so some people think that this is to be able to help people understand that, like, you know, here's the, here is the law, like these first five books of the Bible, and now here's the Psalms, which is how we express our praise for God's law. And you see so much of that in the Psalms, where the psalmists are saying, I want to meditate upon your word, or to help me keep it in my heart. And, and uh, you know, so there's a lot that has to do with the relationship of the Psalms and the law. And, uh, and so the next thing is that they are written by a lot of different people. So King David is the one who had the most psalms that are credited to him. He wrote 73 of the psalms. Um, and then there were people like Asaph, who was a worship leader, and the sons of Korah, and then Heman, Ethan, Moses, Solomon, and unnamed authors. There's 49 psalms that are unnamed, uh, that don't give anyone the credit for it, but they still made it. And I just like to think of that as that God isn't worried about who gets the credit because he gets all the glory, right? That's what the Psalms are all about. So the, the, the third thing is that, as you may know, the Psalms are written in Hebrew. 
And Hebrew has a distinct, um, has some distinct elements in their poetry that will help us as we go along. And there's this one that's, that's pretty big called parallelism. So there's three types of parallelism. And I promise you, I'm not going to get lost in the weeds here, but we want to understand this a little bit so that when we go into these different chapters, we can start to identify where this is happening. But there's synonymous parallelism, there's emblematic parallelism, and there's formal parallelism. So synonymous parallelism is like this that uh, they, that, sorry, synonymous parallelism is obviously one line gives a similar idea to the other. Psalm 18, 4 to 5, the cords of death entangle me, the torrents of destruction overwhelm me, the cords of the grave coil around me, the snares of death confronted me. And as you can see, I'm going to use my laser pointer here, um, is that the cords of death entangle me, the torrents of destruction overwhelm me. It's very just repeating this idea that there is a big struggle going on here. So then second is emblematic parallelism, which uses symbols to be able to, um, to, be able to emphasize the point. So one line may speak literally, and the next is a symbol. Um, Psalm 42.1 kind of is the opposite, where it gives the symbol, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And, uh, and so you get this, this symbol that helps you to, helps the author to reinforce uh, the truth that he's trying to share. And then, and then you have formal parallelism, which is really just a continuation from one stanza to the next. And the example that I have for that is Psalm 124.7, which says, we have escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken and we have escaped. So it just kind of runs on with this similar, uh, with this similar idea. And so it's just more formal. Some people call it a chiasm, that's a technical word, but don't worry about it. That is all just me nerding out on Bible study. So the second thing that's unique about Hebrew poetry is the rhythm. Because as we know, poetry usually has a rhythm. And the thing that is unique in the Psalms is that none of the Psalms really have the same meter. Um, even though they are um, you know, expressing different, different elements, they don't have the same meter. And I think part of that is because God knew the creativity of the writers. And so he allowed for that. And he, it, just like he allows for us to have a, an, an artistic creative expression to God in our worship to him. So um, the, the other poetic features that might be important for us to note today are imagery. And it's a word or a phrase that names a concrete action or thing. By extension, it's a character, a setting, or an event uh, that gives a story or an image and it gives the concrete embodiment of the human experience. In Psalm 1, which we'll be going over next week, uh, you can see that by how he talks about um, the, the, the tree planted by streams of water or by the, assemb by the assembly, you know, the, ty the types of uh, events that are going on here that really give you an image of, of what the psalmist is getting at. Then you have metaphor, which is an implied comparison that does not use the formula like or as. So Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. 
And then you have simile, which is an implied comparison that does use like or as. And uh, that is, uh, is used in Psalm 1-3, where we see, where we see that Lots of psalms to go through today, right? Psalm 1-3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. So it's like a tree planted by still, by still water. Personification is a figure of speech in which human attributes are given to something that is non-human, such as an animal, an object, or abstract qualities. And Psalm 43-3 here, says, send forth your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Now, he's using light and, tr light and, uh, and truth as, as symbols to be able to give, um, to be able to just give the qualities here, uh, the attributes to these qualities. So light is, is given to truth. And then we have, um, we have hyperbole, and that works when, I'm sorry, I forgot to print out the sheet that had all the things on here. A hyperbole is a figure of speech in which a writer continues to exaggerate for the sake of effect. Psalm 42, 3, that he cried on his bed all night, that his tears were, were food. And we know that you don't eat tears, right? And so, and so there's uh, some place where you know there's exaggeration that's used to be able to share like a deep uh, a, a deep lament, especially there. Apostrophe is a figure of speech in which the writer addresses someone that's absent as though present and capable of responding. It might even be addressed to something that's non-human, as in Psalm 148:3 when he commands the stars and the moon to bow down and worship God. Right. So we know that. The stars and the moon don't sing, but we do know that that God created them and that they do submit to God. So um, there, there's those things, and, and the last two are figure of speech, which you might see in Psalm 17:8, where where he says, "Keep me as the apple of your eye." Well, we know that apples don't have eyes, and that doesn't make sense to us in English. Okay, so um, where there's these functions. Uh, figures of speech. I'll do my best to point that out and share that with you. And lastly, there's a there's a acrostic that happens in Psalm 119, where it uses the first letter of each letter of the alphabet in Hebrew to begin a new section of that psalm, which probably gives us a good idea of why that psalm is so long. It's the longest psalm in the whole book. So. That is enough about the technical stuff, and I'm sorry, I hope I didn't bore you or lose you, but these are important things because we need to understand how to read the Bible, how to, how to see, how when we see things in God's Word, that we don't just go, huh, what's that? I don't know, I'm just going to move on to the next thing. So if we have this um, information, it can be helpful. So the second point that I'm going to draw us today is why studying the Psalms are important. You see, they're important because of what it says about God 
what it says about our human experience, and what it says about worship. And, and it's really great to see that all of these complex issues are, are delved into in songs and in prayers that are, that are, ascribed, that are put together in poetry. And, and I think that it says a lot that you know, God would use something like poetry to convey truth. Because a lot of times, you know, if you read poetry uh, today, a lot of it is, this is what I think or what I feel. It's not expressing so much truth as it is somebody's version of events or what's going on in the world. Um, so, so what Psalms has to say about God, and this is not a exhaustive thing, it's not something that I'm saying, here's the only things that Psalms says about God, but these are the important things that we're going to camp out on for the next for the next sermons that we have. God, number one, God is the creator and the king. And you see that in Psalm 19. By his creation, by his rule and his reign and his law that he implements into the world, the order that he gives. God is redeemer. He's the redeemer of life. We see that in Psalms 103. And then in Psalms 122, the theme that God is present, that God is with us. And uh, so these things, these truths of what Psalms has to say about God should perk our ears up and make us excited that we worship such a powerful and awesome God. So the second thing of why I study the Psalms is because of what it has to say about our human experience. You see, in the Psalms, there's often, there's often uh, this momentum, momentum that happens where an author starts out with, here's what I see about the world, here's the orientation that I have of, of the world and uh, what um, my core set of beliefs are about God and life and the way that everything should work. And then they experience some disorientation where they see something that their expectations aren't met. Their expectations uh, might be unfulfilled or broken. And, and I think that you know, if we are to experience an understanding of this, we just have to look at the world around us. Look at what the coronavirus has done to us. We, we had an idea of the world as secure, and as a place that's mostly healthy, you know, that we, that, you know, you get sickness, you get flu, it's normal, that, um, you know, we had, we had some of these ideals flipped on their head when we had to go into lockdown. Uh, we had some of these ideas flipped on our head uh, when we have all this tension around us and we're navigating the world that seems a lot different now than it was six months ago. And the good thing, the good thing, though, is that there is a reorientation. And usually by the end of the song, there, there's this I there's this taking from, okay, now I now the world feels out of control to, oh, here's what I learned about God and his character. And I'm developed, I'm being developed and made more mature in my life of faith. And I'm seeing how the truth that I know. It's still true, but how it works out in my, how it's worked out in my life, how I can be more aligned to God's rule and His reign, to His word and to His kingdom, and I think that we have the opportunity 
to um, see how this season of our lives has an opportunity for us to develop a reorientation of how we see things working out in our life with God. We can grow, we've given, been given this time to be kind of locked down into a place where, you know what I could do was every day was read God's word, go on a walk, play with my kids, and do some work on Zoom. That was my life for about two or three months because of all the extreme stuff that was going on. But am I am I upset that that this disruption had to slow me down? At first, yeah, I was. I was pretty upset, and I was like, I just want to get out there. I want to help people. I want to make a difference. But God was using it as a place to reorient my heart around what His what His desires are and what His priorities are around His Word, around prayer, around being a good leader in my family, and and you know, I get to be a leader out in the community. But that's not you know, like, the most important thing. The most important thing is the identity that I have in Christ. And that's the same thing for you. You know, and the cool thing, too, is that we're seeing that the church was not, you know, even though it was closed, right, the church wasn't closed because the church is the people. And I think that the unique and creative ways that some churches have worked around or moved into this season of ministry shows us that God is so creative and he's so uh, giving us an opportunity to do things in a way that we didn't do them before uh, in a way that we're reaching people that maybe we didn't before or that we couldn't that we didn't think that we could reach before so I think this season of disorientation what I'm hoping for is that we move we move into as this as our church family a season of reorientation and that's why if you walked in, and you've seen on the bulletin board back there these uh, sheets that ask questions or are asking for your input. That's why I want you to put them there because we want to work from going from a place of some disorientation into a place of reorientation and, and really committing to some, some values and a mission statement that will help move us forward to give us uh, a definition of success that is driven by God's word, that is working to make more mature disciples, and is helping us to um, be more connected in the community. So um, that is a lot for talking about what the Psalms has to say about human experience, but I'm going to actually go into a chapter, um, Psalm 73. So if you have a chance to flip your Bibles open to Psalm 73, we're going to camp out here for a minute. So, Psalm 73 begins. It's a psalm of Asaph, and he's one of the worship leaders of Israel. And he he begins it, the first one. Oh, by the way, this is the beginning of the third book of, of these division of psalms. Um, so, here's what he has to say. He's, he writes, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's his orientation of the world. That God is good to his covenant people and to those who are pure in heart. Maybe that's the Gentiles who have converted to the worship of the Lord. Right? They, they could surrender their, their lives to God and, and turn away from their pagan idols. But just at the next verse we see 
He uses these four words. But as for me, but as for me, I became disheartened. I envied the arrogant when I saw their prosperity. They seem to have a life of ease, even though they practice evil. You know, this isn't going verse by verse, but even though they practice evil, their life seemed to be at ease. And, and almost like if he could have asked a question in here, it'd be like, where am I not wrong? Because I've stayed faithful to God. Like, how are these people who are wicked and evil and doing things that are against the Lord allowed to prosper? Well, fortunately, as he's work, he works out these uh, things and these frustrations with God, he, we get to verse 16, where he says, when I tried to understand all of this, it troubled me. Troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. And so he gets to this place where he's reorienting and he's saying, you know what? I was really troubled until I came into God's presence and I realized that God's holy, that God will bring judgment, that God is not going to let them stand forever, right? That their final destiny, he's, he goes through uh, verses 23 to 28, where he says, he, where he writes, Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all of your deeds. Now, he gets to this reorientation of thanksgiving and praise and acknowledging God's power and, and, his, and the way that God is the refuge for when he, we, have to, we have to see the world working in ways that don't match what God is telling us, what, God, what God's word says, what we know to be true about him. So I just think that this is important because if the book of Psalms is just a hymn book, because I mean, if you use, the, sometimes we use the word hymn book and we think of like what we have in front of us, you know, like on our seats, and it's, it sounds scary to a lot of younger people. I, I myself like hymns, um, and so I definitely love that we, that we do them and try to have a mix. But I think that if we have this idea that, okay, it's just about standing up and singing these songs that share these things about God, but I don't know how they connect into my personal world, uh, it leaves people kind of wondering, like, what, what are the Psalms supposed to help me navigate in my life? So that's, that's my little spiel on that. But lastly, the reason why we should study Psalms is because of what it says about worship. And you see, the Psalms are an authentic and honest conversation or blend of songs to God that are, that are so beautiful and wonderful and show that it's healthy to, um, to creatively express ourselves towards him. See, Pastor Tim Keller, he said, the Lord's Prayer teaches us what to pray, and the Psalms teach us how to pray. 
See, the Psalms teach us how to pray, and we know that if you did a word study in the book of Psalms, and you looked at what accompanies worship, uh, you'd see that worship is a full-body experience, and it, it engages our mind and our thoughts through things like thinking, right? <laughs> Use your mind to think. Uh, through silencing your mind, right? Through, through experiencing silence with God. Um, we experience God through our heart and through our emotions. So through how we, through our feelings, through searching, when God is searching our heart, when we're with God and in that quiet place, when we're giving thanks and praise to God, it's, it's a joyful expression. It's something where you stand up, where you clap, where you utilize, you know, these these uh, full-body motions to be able to engage in worship of God. And lastly, it engages with our senses. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Which we're going to do later today. We're going to have communion. And we're going we're gonna to just proclaim the gospel together through that. You can, you can speak. You can listen. You can breathe. You know, like, we can breathe and be silent and be in a worshipful state. There's times where authors talk about being touched by God, being touched, and, and there's times where, where there's meditation that's happening, right? And so there's all these experiences that involve our whole body, but they're no good if our whole life is not continually about worship. If worship is just what becomes your routine on a Sunday to come and sing four songs here, and we don't utilize our whole life as an act of worship to God, then it's it's just words. And and Psalm 146 1 says, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing everything, I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. And and in Psalm 150, you see, you know, this this conveying of everything that has breath, praise the Lord. So this idea that we want worship to be continuous in our life, that we want worship to be spread in our world, the worship of God to be spread throughout our world. And Psalms is a great book for, for seeing that out and living it out. That's the next thing that we're going to. Lastly is how do the Psalms apply to my everyday life? Now, there's a couple of different ways. Number one, they encourage us to bring everything to God. Your joy and your discouragement, your hope and your despair, your confession and your thanksgiving. And the reality is that you can, there's nothing that is too big or too small for God to hear. There's nothing too big or too small to give to God in praise, there's nothing too big or too small to give to God when you feel like you're at, your, at the end of yourself. Because when we're in those places and we're acknowledging God and how he is with us and how he's present and how he is working our lives, worship is the natural outflow of that. Well, it's a supernatural outflow because if left to our own devices, we'll worship a lot of things except God. So, uh, number two, the Psalms apply to our lives because they require us to slow down. And, and that is why I feel a conviction around these next 11 weeks 
about taking some of our elements of our service and slowing down a little bit so that we can really dig into God's word, but also so that we can experience worship together at a slower pace and not just be about, hey, let's let's uh, go from one thing to the next thing. And so, like I said, we'll have some moments where there's stillness, we'll have some moments where there's some expression, and, and it's going to be a little different, but I think it's going to be good. It's going to stretch us, because the way that you that your muscles get bigger, right, is by stretching them, the way by working them out. So we need to slow down because our technology-driven mechanical pace that we work on in this world from moving from one thing to the next, and I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I need to learn this because I feel like God has been working on this a lot in my life recently. But when we slow down, we can create a pace and a rhythm and rest that allows us to recognize our need for God, how much we desperately need Him. I love that song. Lord, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Right? And, and it's not just every hour. I need God every minute. I need God every second, every nanosecond of my life. And the reality is that this slower pace allows us to acknowledge his presence with us. And it allows us to, to acknowledge the beauty of his creation that he's made. I mean, I don't know about you, but my favorite thing about going to, my second favorite thing, going to prayer night on Wednesday nights at Jim and Jean's house is that we get this beautiful view of the lake and the sunset, and it just reminds me of how good God is, how wonderful his works are and his creation is. And it allows us to slow down, it allows us to recognize the gift of life that we've been given. Because life is precious. Life is sweet. I'm not gonna, I know if there's a song that you're thinking of, just finish the words in your head. But, um, the reality is, is that we're not guaranteed the next day. I just said a friend this last week who, one of his best friends who's 30, died. he's dying of cancer. They just found out, and, and uh, it's sad because he's got kids. He had a whole, what he thought, a whole life in front of him, right? So let's not take life for granted. Let's take the moments that we have and acknowledge God and who he is in them, so that our when we do get the end, to the end of our life, people will say, you know what? They saw how he worshiped God, how they worshiped God, and it was and it and it was it was inspiring to me to see what God did in their life. See, to get the fruit as much fruit as possible from reading Psalms together, and and you can pick up a reading plan today on the back counter for the price of zero ninety nine. It's free, but you get it, and uh, and you can catch up with us and get there, and uh, and we will gladly have listen to your song, uh, God sightings on the blue card. But like the reality is, is that we need to slow down a little bit and practice this uh, space to be able to comprehend and listen and name the places in our life that God is working to develop our hearts for being more prayerful, for being more worshipful, um, because being a person of prayer and being a person of worship is something that should describe your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. So the last thing, the last big reason that 
you, that the Psalms apply to our life is that they allow us to point to and to proclaim Jesus. See, these aren't all the Psalms, but you have Psalms 2, Psalms 22, and Psalms 110 that give clear references to the anticipation of the Messiah coming, of God's Savior coming. And, you know, many of the Psalms have these prophetic elements. And you could even look cross-reference where maybe they're referenced in the New Testament and see how God uses the Psalms even then. Because we get the benefit of reading scripture after its fulfillment. And I mean, thank goodness, right? Because some people, when they read about this Messiah that was going to come and conquer and rule and reign, had this idea that the Messiah would fit into their political philosophy. The Messiah would give them the social justice that they were hoping for. The Messiah would get rid of these pesky Romans and Gentiles that were overrunning the land. Well, did Jesus give them a run for their money? And he said, my kingdom is not of this world, right? He clearly states what he's about. And like I said, we have the benefit of being able to read from the fulfillment end. Um, and like I said, the writers in the New Testament, they use the Psalms over a hundred times. Uh, some examples are that Matthew, he, he uses them to prove Jesus' kingship. Uh, the church in Acts 4, they're being persecuted. And so they go up to a room and they, and they, and they start going through Psalm 2. Why do the people, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? And they ask God to give them boldness. And so they use the Psalms. Paul, in Acts 13, uses, uses some quotes from the Psalms uh, to talk about Jesus and about the resurrection and about um, you know, coming to know the Lord. So I just want you to know that this is, I want to say, the best that I can do in overviewing the Psalms in one sermon, because we could add two or three. But we're going to go into some more of the themes and some more of the... Um, more of the types of psalms as we go through this series. So we won't go through all 150 of them, I promise. But um, we will really just dive into them and enjoy and see what the Lord has in store for us. So